0: We are looking at Exodus 4, 18 through 31, again, the fourth part of our consideration of the calling of Moses, the calling of the old covenant redeemer. And that calling really begins in chapter 2 with all of the preparations, and it really comes to a conclusion here with Moses responding to the call and Moses doing those last things that are necessary before he goes back into Egypt and God so powerfully delivers the Israelites through him because God has so put his hand upon Moses to be the old covenant redeemer and in that sense to be a type of the Lord Jesus who is the redeemer of God's people. And so we're looking tonight at Exodus 4, beginning in verse 18, reading down to verse 31, and I'll just go ahead and preemptively tell you there are some really weird parts of this passage. So just buckle up because this is the kind of passage that reminds you the old testament has some really strange stuff in it so we are looking here at verse 18 now we read moses went back to jethro his father-in-law and said to him please let me go back to my brothers in egypt to see whether they are still alive and jethro said to moses go in peace and the lord said to moses and midian go back to egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back into the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, it is interesting in church history, and I was just speaking with a fellow PCA minister about this the other day, in church history, w- many of our heroes were extreme men for the worse. Um, George Whitfield, at one point said that he could only dream of what ministry would have been like without his wife. That's not a good thing. Um, and, and extreme men are often celebrated. A, a number of years ago, there was a movement in the church that encouraged people to live radical lives, radical church Radical Christianity. And there was then a pushback to that, that oftentimes the most radical Christian life and the most radical ministry is a very ordinary ministry, being faithful in the little things and the small things. Now, I mention that to you because here in Exodus chapter 4, as Moses is now finally responding to God's call, and he is finally going to obey the Lord, because remember, Moses to this point has raised five objections, and his last one was like, send somebody else. And God said, no, I'm sending you. And he gave him the rod, and he gave him the three signs, and he said, you're going to go. Aaron's going to speak for you. No more objections. And Moses has finally come to a place where he is ready to be used by God and to respond to the call of God. But first, he has to go do some very ordinary things, that don't seem very impressive at all, and yet are extremely important in understanding how we ought to respond to God's call in our lives when he calls us into certain ministries. Now, we are gonna see tonight three things here in Moses' response to God's call. We're gonna see his departure from Midian in verses 18 through 23. We're gonna see his near-death experience in verses 24 through 26. And we're going to see his arrival in Egypt in verses 27 to 31. But what I want us to notice here is as Moses is now preparing to obey the call of God, notice the first thing he does in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Now, there are a number of things happening here. Remember, Moses has been in Midian for 40 years. He's been tending his father-in-law's sheep. And so no no doubt he is having to put his house in order. Moses understands if he is going to go back to Egypt, he not only needs the blessing of his father-in-law, he not only desires that, he's going to have to make sure that he takes care of the small things. Somebody's going to have to care for his father-in-law's sheep. He's going to have to make sure that all the arrangements are taken care of. Moses understands that his family is a vitally important part of his life and that he can't just brush it to the side and go off in the mission field. Now, I mentioned already George Whitfield. Another uh, dubious character was David Livingston, who left his wife, who was very sick, to go in the mission field and ultimately let her die back home without actually caring for her because he so spiritualized ministry that he neglected the ministry God had put right in front of him. That's a very common thing. Moses sets a really glorious example for us. Moses is here honoring his father-in-law. He is respecting his aged father-in-law. He's not saying to him, now listen up, the Lord has big plans for me, so you're going to have to figure out what you're going to do because I'm gone, and I'm, I'm going to be a hashtag world changer. And he would become a world changer, and the Lord did have big plans for him, but he became faithful in what was little. Now, there is a curious statement here as Moses uh, prepares to depart from Midian, because when he says to his father-in-law, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive, it seems as though Moses is sort of doubting what the Lord had said because the Lord had told him everything he was going to do through him. And now Moses comes to Jethro and he says, well, let me just go back to see if they're even alive, to, to see if maybe Pharaoh hasn't destroyed them. And and so there's one way of reading this, and that, that would be to say that Moses here is doubting God and, and he is not fully convinced that God is is as certain, can be certainly trusted as as um as one might think and yet there is another explanation here and i think it's a better one i think that moses realizes if he tells jethro everything that the lord has told him that his father-in-law is going to try to persuade him not to go because he is going to face the most powerful man in the world at that time and he already has a bad track record in egypt And no doubt, over 40 years, he has filled his father-in-law in in on some of those things. And so he simply says, let me go back and let me see if my brothers are still alive. Now, his father-in-law is going to give his blessing. There's another interesting thing here in Moses's preparations to depart from Midian. Moses has decidedly bound himself to the covenant people he says, let me go and see if my brothers are still alive. You see, Moses has now cast off fully his identity as an Egyptian, and he is fully identifying as one of the people of God. It's really a beautiful picture. This is this is what all of us do. When we come to Christ, we cast off whatever we were, and our identity is bound up in who we are among the people of God. That is our primary identity. Now, that is a very small thing on one level. It's a very ordinary thing. There's not, this is not a gigantic act of faith, but it is an act of faith. Moses is unashamed to call his persecuted brethren my brothers. He's unashamed to unite himself with the people of God. Um, you know, it's interesting because the Lord Jesus, if anyone could have been ashamed to unite himself to a sinful people, let alone a hated people. It would have been God over all. And yet the Lord Jesus identified himself. He became a, not only a man, he became an Israelite. He was born under the law. He was identified with an enslaved people in order to redeem his people. Um, and then the New Testament tells us, which is beautiful, that God is not ashamed to be called our God. And so there's a reciprocal response, isn't there? If the living God is not ashamed to be called our God, people like us, we ought not be ashamed to associate ourselves fully and wholly with his people. We'll notice that Jethro says to Moses there in verse 18, go in peace, and then the Lord meets Moses, and this is the tail end of the Lord's call to Moses, and the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Now, we don't know exactly why the Lord is telling him this. It, it might be that Moses was, uh, had so much trepidation over what might happen to him. However, remember, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 says that he did not fear the wrath of the king. So on one hand, someone could say that the Lord is just trying to encourage Moses to get over any fears he might have. But I think there's something else happening. I think the Lord is telling Moses, I have already set in motion my plan of redemption and it is going to happen. And I have already begun that process by taking out those very rulers who are out to kill you. Um, isn't that interesting? The Lord has a way of going before us to take care of things for us. That's a principle very hard for me to get. I like to take things into my own hands. Something happens that I feel like could be detrimental. I get on the phone and talk for 25 hours about it. I got to figure out a plan. And here the Lord is telling Moses, I've already dealt with the first great obstacle for you. Isn't that beautiful? I've already taken out of the way those who stood in your way, and my purposes and my plan is guaranteed. Notice that Moses responds to that in verse 20 by taking his wife and his sons and riding them on the donkey and going back to the land of Egypt. Now, interesting, Moses takes his wife and his children. He takes his family with, us, with him. We're going to learn later that he's going to send them away for safekeeping. But right now, he is not going to do this without his family. He's not going to neglect those God has first and foremost entrusted to him. Again, there is a big principle here. Nothing God calls us to trumps God's call for us to care for those within the moral sphere of moral proximity to us. Um, while on the one hand, Jesus did say, whoever loves father, mother, wife, sons, daughters more than me is not worthy of me. On the other hand, he says, if a man doesn't provide for his house, he's worse than an infidel. And so you can see how important just these little details are. If Moses is going to be the man God is going to use, Moses is going to do the little things that are right in front of him in taking care of his own family. And then notice there is such a powerful word here as Moses goes back to Egypt and leaves Midian. Notice the final words of verse 20. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now we have seen that that staff is God's (laughs) pledge of his almighty redeeming power. It is a rod of judgment. It is a rod of power. It is, and notice, it is now called for the first time, it was Moses' rod, now it's called the staff of God. And that means, to put this in the most simple way possible, Moses leaves Midian and rides into Egypt with his family on one hand and with God on the other. And he is going to go do what God called him to do with his wife and his children and the very symbol of God's power. Now, this is not a magic stick, It doesn't have any inherent power in it. It was just a dead piece of wood. And yet God set it apart and the rod becomes a picture of the cross of Christ. Now, this is not illegitimate spiritualizing. The rod of God's judgment is a picture of the cross on which Christ hangs because the cross is the place of the power of God. If Moses is going to respond to God's call to go into ministry, he must have the symbol of God's power. And if we are called to respond, if we are going to respond to God's call to minister in whatever capacity, we need the symbol of God's power. And that is the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That is where all the power is. You know, you think about how many churches in this country spend the better part of their time trying to figure out how to gimmick or program people into churches. And God has said, I have given you something in which I invested all of my power. And if you will preach Jesus Christ crucified, it will produce more power in the lives of people and more effective ministry than the greatest music program, the greatest entertainment, the greatest gathering, the greatest outreach, the greatest smoke machine you could ever come up with. Because the message of the cross is the very power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Moses is taking the symbol of God's power in his hand as he rides out of Midian and heads back to Egypt. Well, notice that the Lord is not done communicating to Moses. And now the Lord says, when you go back, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do all the miracles I've shown you. But listen to this. He says, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he will not listen to you. Now, this is fascinating. God has said to Moses, I'm going to use you to redeem my people. I'm going to enable you to do all kinds of powerful and miraculous things. Nothing's going to happen to you. I've taken away everybody that opposed you. I'm going to be with you. You don't think you can speak well? Fine, I'll bring Aaron for you. I mean, the Lord has done everything. And then he said, but when you go in and you do all this, Pharaoh's not going to believe you. I mean, if you're Moses, that's not a very motivating message from the Lord. Think about this. God said to Isaiah the prophet, Here's the message I'm going to give you, and you're going to tell the people, keep on seeing and don't see, keep on hearing, and don't hear, make the hearts of these people dull, shut their eyes. That's a hard message. You're going to be a famous prophet, and people will not listen to you because I am hardening their hearts. Uh, Phil (coughs) Riken says this, God tells Moses to perform the same marvels for Pharaoh Not so that he will let God's people go, but for exactly the opposite reason. Rather than making a believer out of Pharaoh, the signs would harden him in his unbelief. In his stubbornness, he would refuse to let God's people go. The miracles of Jesus Christ had much the same effect. Think of that. The miracles of Jesus had much the same effect. That's amazing. According to God's sovereign will, some believed and were saved, while others doubted and we're condemned. That's a sobering word. No amount of miraculous signs is necessarily going to lead people to believe in the Lord Jesus. There was a famous debate many, many, many decades ago between a a famous atheist and a Christian theologian, and the atheist essentially said to this theologian, "If, if I could just see a miraculous sign right now, I would believe. And The theologian said, no, you wouldn't. In fact, if this podium levitated right now in front of me, you wouldn't believe. You would still harden your heart. You would still resist everything God has done and said. And Pharaoh becomes a warning, doesn't he? And yet there is an encouragement. God is still sovereign over all that. The Lord is telling Moses, even in that, at the end of the day, this is my ministry. This is not your ministry. Remember, God can use a dead stick. He can use me. It's his ministry. It's not my ministry. And so he is even teaching that to Moses. And then notice the the Lord says that you shall say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve you. But if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, the doctrine of adoption in Scripture appears first here. where God is calling the old covenant people, my son, my firstborn. But we know that ultimately what lay behind that is the eternal sonship of Jesus. And what God is ultimately intimating here when he calls Israel my firstborn son, is that Israel is going to be the son that he has set apart for himself to redeem. But ultimately there's going to be one among the Israelites who is the everlasting son who is the firstborn over all creation, who is the uncreated son, in whom we receive the adoption as sons and daughters. Ultimately, by the way, theologians have pointed out that when the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and we know ultimately that Christ is the firstborn son, that this verse is proving that Jesus is the true Israel of God. That everything God is doing here is ultimately prefiguring what Jesus is going to do. Reichen again says this. The New Testament presents Jesus Christ as God's perfect son, the one who served his father with absolute devotion. Jesus was everything God ever wanted in a son, on one level accomplishing what Israel was supposed to accomplish. The gospel makes this connection explicitly by describing the life of Christ as a new exodus. Not long after he was born, Jesus was sent down into Egypt where he remained until the death of Herod. His subsequent return to Israel reminded Matthew of the Old Testament promise, Out of Egypt I called my son, Habakkuk Hosea 11.1. It was Matthew's way of saying that Jesus is the true Israel, God's firstborn son. This was confirmed when Jesus was baptized, and the father said, This is my son, whom I love. The promise of sonship was fulfilled In Jesus Christ. Now, why is that so important that we get that? Because ultimately, everything God is going to do is not about the physical ethnic nation of Israel. It's about what he is preparing to do by coming into the world as the true Israel to redeem men and women out of every tongue, tribe, nation and language and to make us sons and daughters. So there is a steady stream from this verse To John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, even to those that believe on his name. Well, God is nevertheless uh, incredibly interested in making sure that nothing else happens to his son, to Israel. And notice there, he says to Moses to go back to Pharaoh and to say, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And now you'll remember this and listen carefully. That last plague, which ultimately drives Israel out of Egypt, was also threatened to fall on Israel. If they didn't have the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost of their houses and what that said was that they weren't the ultimate son, because God even threatened to kill their firstborn. At the end of the day, there was absolutely nothing different between Israel and Egypt. Both deserve God's judgment, both needed redemption. The only difference lay in the fact that God had set Israel apart for a special purpose for this time in redemptive history. Well, I want us to consider very briefly Moses's near-death experience. I told you how weird this gets. Uh, you you almost wonder whether there was a transitional sentence left out, because Moses is going. God has equipped him. He is responding. He's doing everything right. He is taking very ordinary, faithful measures to to do the little things and to make sure he leaves well. And then notice this: at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. We presumably Moses and sought to put him to death. And you're like, what? Doesn't even make sense. I remember as a new Christian reading this, like, what in the world is going on? But we very quickly learn it's because Moses has not circumcised his son, his firstborn son. Now, why would God, why would the Lord go from saying, nothing's going to hurt you you're going to have the successful ministry delivering my people. Even when Moses argued with the Lord five times, objected, the Lord was gracious to him in his responses. And now the Lord wants to kill him. And his wrath is burning hot against Moses because he hasn't circumcised his son. Well, I think a very simple explanation is that circumcision was the sign of the gospel in the Old Testament. And it was also the mark that set apart God's people as the covenant people. And if someone didn't receive the sign of circumcision, God says they were to be cut off. They were not part of the covenant people. And so there is a very special sense in which Moses, if he is going to be the deliverer of God's people, and yet he is unwilling to fully have his family identify with God's people, how in the world could he be the deliverer of the covenant people to whom God gave the covenant sign when he gave it to Abraham, when he has again given it and reiterated it in the, in the law, and yet here is Moses unwilling to give that sign to his son. Now, we don't know why Moses refused to do this. I, I tend to think that his wife didn't like the idea, and so she was objecting to the idea, and so he had given in to her rather than doing what God had commanded his people and he knew he should have done. Uh, What's interesting, whatever explanation we take, she is the one that takes the flint. That's actually led some people to say he was the one that was refusing it and she was willing to. But whatever the case, she took the flint. She cut off her son's foreskin. She threw it at Moses' feet, or that could be a euphemism. And she said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So she left him alone. She said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, here's what's interesting. In everything that happens right here, God is teaching Moses the importance and the centrality of the gospel. Here's a picture. Moses is for a moment under the wrath of God. Moses has rejected a sign that points to the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross. Moses has refused a sign that says that he needs his heart cleansed and his children need their hearts cleansed by a bloody judgment. He has, in that sense, rejected the gospel. He's under the wrath of God, and the only remedy is bloodshed. And the second the blood is shed, the wrath is removed. Isn't that interesting? God is teaching Moses more about the gospel in the act of Moses needing to obey the Lord in giving the covenant sign to his family. Now, I want to read this to you, Phil Reichen says this, God was giving his prophet firsthand experience of salvation. First, God showed Moses the wages of sin by placing him under divine wrath. Then his deadly wrath was turned away or propitiated by the blood of circumcision. Blood is mentioned specifically because in order to be delivered from death, Moses had to be touched by the blood of a sacrifice and thereby be identified with it. Isn't that interesting? God is teaching Moses Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Um, I want us to finally look at Moses' arrival in Egypt. Now, that little segue, interesting segue, leads now to Moses going and meeting with Aaron and then with the elders, speaking the words that God had given him to the Israelites. It then proceeds to the Israelites believing what Moses says, And ultimately, notice the last verse, to bowing their heads and worshiping the Lord. Now, why is this last section so important? You'll remember from earlier sections, Moses' main objections were, what if the people will not listen to me? What if the elders will not believe me? Who should I tell them sent me? What should I say? What sign will you give me? What else should I do? Please send somebody else. And and I'm not a man of great speech and eloquence. And the Lord had dealt with all those things. The Lord had reiterated constantly how it was going to turn out. The people are going to listen. The elders are going to listen. And the brevity of this section is interesting. It is meant to show us that what God said to Moses happened exactly as God said it was going to. Notice this. I want you to just briefly look at this. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord and the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the sign in the sight of the people, and the people believed. Notice how short and passing attention is placed on Moses and Aaron's interaction with the elders. There's there's no extended dialogue, You don't get the sense that the elders of Israel in bondage in Egypt said, how do we know you're going to do this? Who do you think you are coming back here after 40 years? Everything Moses feared, God took care of. Isn't that interesting? Everything Moses feared, the Lord took care of. And I think there's a word for us there. While we want to be prepared to be faithful and our witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we want to know his word well, and while we want to know sound doctrine, and while we want to pray for opportunities, remember what Jesus said to the disciples. He said, you're going to stand before kings and rulers and authorities, and in that moment, do not worry what you're going to say or what you're going to speak, for it's the Holy Spirit who's going to give you what to say, and what to speak. And the Lord does for us what he's doing for Moses. If he has called us to minister, and he has guaranteed that he is going to bless that ministry in whatever degree, though it be 30-fold fruit or 100-fold fruit, and he's given us all the means to do it, and he says, I'm going to give my spirit to you to carry it out, And I'm going to make you fruitful because I desire for you to be fruitful. That means we can go into any ministry. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, because Christ is risen, do not grow weary in well-doing, he says, remember that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I want to encourage you tonight, wherever you are in life. And, you know, I don't... I don't expect to have some grandiose deliverance ministry like Moses did. And I i don't know, maybe you will, maybe not. But I know that God calls us to respond to him calling all of us to be faithful in whatever ministries he puts in front of us, starting with our families, starting with our homes, in the little things, in obeying the Lord in things like taking the covenant sign, something seemingly so insignificant and yet so important that we don't want to overlook the little things in seeking for great things. And we don't wanna look at things that are ordinary as if they are a burden or a hindrance or a speed bump to ministry. I think for years I had that. I wanted bigger, faster ministry, quicker. God wants us to be faithful in the little things and to know that if we minister the way he has called us to and we use the means that he has given us and we go with the symbol of his power, the cross, that he has promised to bless that and he has promised to bring about good, even if it means that some people are hardened like Pharaoh and others are saved like the Israelites I think that's an important word for us, and I hope that you'll be encouraged tonight by it. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would make us to be a faithful people in what is ordinary, in what often seems mundane, in those things that perhaps at time feel like hindrances to the greater and the bigger ministries, Father in heaven, would you make us a people who obey you in seeking to be faithful in what is least, so that we can also be faithful in what is greater? Our God, we thank you and praise you that you have given us your word, that you have given us the gospel, that you have given us the adoption as sons and daughters, that you have made us to understand our need for the atoning blood of Christ. And so we pray, our God, that you would put your hand upon us, that you would make us a people who respond to the ministries that you call us to and put in front of us, and that you would make us a faithful people, trusting you that this is your ministry and that you would accomplish your purposes through us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.